Well, good morning this morning. Um, you know, before I begin my message, I do want to call Bakta. Would you like to come up here? I'd just like uh, him to extend uh, greetings to us. Bakta is, uh, and you know what, guys, you might need, this mic might, might need to be on. Uh, Bakta is, uh, his son is, his name is Mohan Thapa, who has uh, come from Nepal. He has um, come as a student um, to NIU. He goes to Kishwaukee Bible Church. And so it's through Mohan that I know Bhakta, and uh, he is born and raised in Nepal. I was one of the first Christians in Nepal. Uh, he was telling us at prayer meeting that uh, he was one of the first 30 Christians in, this, in the nation, and now there are close to 500,000 Christians in the nation. Just want him to, to share about um, uh, just the church, uh, how it is, how we might pray for him, and um, just we can give him all, all a big Jameson, right? Okay, let's greet him, Al. Jamesy, for everyone. I am bringing Jamesy and a greeting from my church, uh, Pokhara, Nepal, Lama Chaur Church. From Lama Chaur Church. Uh, we have member um, 481 member now. Last week, uh, 27 people, last Saturday, 27 people were baptized. We had 458 people, but now plus 27. And uh, pray the Lord. And uh, we have to pray those people who are new and they were baptized now. Uh, we have to, we must pray for them. And be so dire they may not come in the temptation and they may be strong. And uh, that uh, fellowship uh, was started in 1967, and now it became a big church. And the same way, in different parts of Nepal, there are many churches nowadays. And uh, when I... Um, Lord, when I get Lord as my... Uh, save here, in that time, few Christians were there, maybe 15 to 30, 40 only, and uh, um, in that time, uh, it was very difficult to, to believe Lord Jesus because people did not like, and uh, people always uh, um, told against the Christian. And this is the foreign religion, this is the white man religion, this is the low caste religion. And why are following this? We have great God, they say so. But when I study the Hindu religious book and ask the teacher, ask the religious person, who is God, where is God, and but they could not reply me, which make me made me satisfied. I never uh, found great test God. And uh, from my childhood, when I was 11 years old, and uh, I went to school as a student, my father always told me, son, uh, going to school and uh, reading book, it is not enough. You must believe in God, he told me. And that... Uh, uh, came in my mind always, I was thinking about God, and I uh, started to study different religious books, Hindu religious books. 
but when i became uh, 16 17 years old and i was not satisfied with this god because i uh, study about them they were just like a man uh, they were doing good they were doing bad like man and uh, i never found uh, greatest god in the re- hindu religious book that is why in when i was became a 19 years old and uh, one of my brothers brought her new testament and gave me and he told brothers i got this book one of the nurse in kolkata in india she gave me and this is the religious book and read it it is good for you she told me and he gave me that book and i i study and i got about jesus christ in this book and uh, i compare i when i study about the character of the jesus i compare with the hindu gods and uh, but i found jesus as a savior he must be god if there is god jesus must be god and uh, because uh, um, if you study about the character of the others god there are 333 million god and uh, uh, but just like a man i could not find out the any clue they were god uh, so in in my 19 years old i believe jesus as my savior and in that time few christian were there that brothers knew some of the missionary and he took me there and the missionary also helped me um, because i had lot of question uh, and uh, they uh, replied me many way and uh, uh, i understood uh, so from 1973 and uh, we started our fellowship in our village but uh, in 1960 end of the 1966 that were scattered because of the persecution and the many communist people came there some of the british military gorkha people came there and they started to talk against us and this fellowship was dispersed and uh, people went to different place but we went to bhali area and started a new uh, fellowship there and that fellowship turned into a big church now and uh, that church working around this area uh, very good and uh, another place i went again and started the fellowship in 1967 and that fellowship turned into a big church now this called lama chow church from where i am bringing uh, jai masi or greeting and uh, you know now we are we are making we are forming a christian society in every district there are 75 district in nepal in 75 district there are 75 christian association now and uh, time to time we get to gathers and uh, discuss and uh, 
how to solve the problem and we pray uh, this way we do and uh, we are uh, making a agenda or to say uh, to to give the government uh, we are we are just requesting the government giving the paper uh, to save uh, to say um, to save the um, i'm sorry i forget the word <laughs> word and uh, how to how the christian people also uh, worship their god our god and uh, uh, the in the constitution it should be written and uh, the right of the christian peoples should be mentioned in the constitution we are uh, forwarding that idea So I just want to leave fucked up here and pray. Boy, just think about that. You want to write religious freedom into your constitution. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Lama Church Church and uh, just the things that you have done there that we as a church are focused more upon uh, Bakunde and what's taking place there. You've done a marvelous work all across Nepal. would pray that you would strengthen the brothers and sisters there as they live in poverty and find nothing else. Um, thank you for the, the great growth of the church and would pray that that would have great influence upon that dark, uh, dark nation. So I pray that you'd help. And even now, as the government is in shambles, as they're writing a new constitution, I pray that they might not revert to a Hindu nation as they have been in the past, but may they um, explicitly have religious freedom in there that the Christians might go about and be able to share their faith freely with uh, those who are so lost. We just pray your blessing upon Bhakta and his remaining time here and for Mohan and that you would delight to, um, to please them, to serve them, to help them. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Jamesy. Jamesy. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Jamesy is the common greeting in Nepal, um, which means Jesus is the Messiah. There's reigning victory in Jesus. Is that right? Victory in Jesus. So Christians go around and say, victory in Jesus, victory in Jesus. Everyone else in the country says, namaste, which means hello. And the Christians go around and say, victory in Jesus. Really, it's a really cool thing that takes place in Nepal. Well, we can open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews for our exposition this morning. We're going to finish chapter 9, I hope. Um, it's been a month since we've been in Hebrews. Uh, normally, we're just week in, week out. We've been in Hebrews. And so, just for uh, a week, I didn't preach. And uh, Father's Day and last week, I had a burden on my heart. We've been in Hebrews, been about a month. So, what I want to do is really review the book of Hebrews with you, if you will. And maybe kind of help, you can help me review as well, because I didn't have time to study this week so much. And was looking for, what's the theme of Hebrews again? I forgot. What is it? Jesus is better, so press on. And there we go, exactly like that. Jesus is better, so press on. And, and, and maybe I can ask you, the book of Hebrews, where is it described that Jesus is better? Where describe that? Someone can say something. Everywhere, absolutely. In fact, the whole book, I mean, the, the situation of the book is that these people have come out of Judaism... Whoa, how am I? Okay, I'm better. All right, they've seen Jesus and seen Him 
um, as maybe the Messiah. They've come into the church, but these from the Jewish religion are kind of persuading them away. Saying, no, come back to Judaism. Come back to Judaism. Jesus isn't good enough. And he's just saying time after time after time, Jesus is better all over the place. Andrew, exactly right. But what explicitly does it say about how Jesus is better? What are some passages that come to mind or some people that come to mind? Jesus is better than... Then the angels I heard first. Who said angels? Over here someplace. Uh, Adriana, you did. Chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus has inherited a more excellent name than the angels. And it goes down in Hebrews 1, talking about none of the angels were named son. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I begotten you. And, and none of the angels were ever worshipped, but it says in chapter 1, verse 6, let all the angels of God worship him. In chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Jesus has a throne and he will reign forever and ever. That's chapter 1. And the argument, Jesus is better than the angels, continues right on through chapter 2. Jesus is better than what else? I heard someone say something. Moses, right. Um, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, that says that Jesus has been given more honor than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. So you say, what's got more honor, the house or the builder? The builder has more honor. Um, Moses is only a son, a servant, and Jesus is a son. What? Jesus is better than what else? Than a high priest, right? That begins in chapter 5. It speaks about Jesus being a high priest um, and how much better he is. He kind of introduces a theme there. And then in chapter 7, really it's talking about Melchizedek and how Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And, and his order is different than the order of Levi. It says perfection never came through Levi and since that, why was there a need for another priest to arise after that? But Melchizedek arose and was a priest, and he's a perfect priest, an everlasting priest. You can read about that in Psalm 110, chapter 7 as well. What else? Jesus is better than what? <clears throat> than who? Than angels? Yep, we mentioned that one. Good. Gracie. Then Abraham. Exactly right. And some of that comes back to Melchizedek. And the question is, who's better, Abraham or Melchizedek? And, it, and the writer goes back to that uh, meeting of them in, in Genesis chapter 14 where Melchizedek met Abraham. And though Abraham, still in his loins, were the sons of Levi, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and Melchizedek blessed him. And so that made Melchizedek higher than Abraham and all of his offspring, for sure. And Christ is on the order of Melchizedek. Good. What else? Jesus is better than... Then Moses, good. KB, we talked about Moses already. That's good. Better than who? The what? Yeah, the Old Testament. Probably what you're getting at there is uh, the first covenant. It says in chapter 8, verse 7, that, talking about the Old Covenant, if that first covenant had been faultless, there wouldn't have been occasion sought for a second. But finding fault with the Old Covenant, God says, prophesying Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will give you a new covenant, says the Lord. Not like the covenant back there, the old covenant, but a new covenant. And that shows that the old covenant, which says in chapter 8, verse 13, when he says a new covenant, has made the old um, obsolete and that's ready to disappear. It's because the new covenant is so much better now it's come in Jesus. So Jesus has a better covenant than any others. Jesus is better than, than Aaron. Okay, he's talked about in chapter 5. Uh, a bit there about the high priest and Aaron and kind of compares Jesus and puts Jesus above Aaron for sure. Good. Is what? <laughs> Jesus is better than Christmas traditions. All right, let me... That is very true. That's not in the book of Hebrews, but 
for those of you who weren't here, I've been preaching Jesus is better, Jesus is better, and then came Christmas time. I said Jesus is better than Christmas traditions, so I preached two messages on that. And so, exactly right. That's very good, Andrew. <laughs> Remember, uh, I think of one. Uh, I can think of a couple more. Uh, Jesus is better than the prophets. The whole book of Hebrews starts out that God. Um, many, many portions in many ways long ago spoke to the fathers and the prophets and, and just kind of talking about them. But he says, but now he's spoken to us in his Son whom he's appointed heir of all things through also he made the world. And Jesus, the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature and holds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is so much better than all the revelation which came in various different ways in the prophets. Jesus also is better than Joshua in the sense that the rest that Jesus has given is better than the rest that Joshua gave. Joshua brought Israel into the land. We just, uh, just read yeah, just a couple nights ago about the story of Jericho and conquering that, and then they conquered Ai, and then they conquered the southern, and then they conquered the north, and they got the whole land, and they gave them a rest. But it says in chapter 4, verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest or full rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that or another rest after that, like David in Psalm 95, years, years later. And so it shows that the rest that, that Joshua provided was only a, a shadow of the rest that Jesus would provide. And I think maybe that's it. There's lots of other, lots of other uh, sinews there and, and things. But Jesus is better. And, and almost like any, anything that you bring up, Jesus is better. He's got a better covenant. He's a better priest. better than Moses. Joshua provides a better rest. All those sorts of things. And now we come to another argument. Jesus is better. And by the way, Jesus is better, so press on. There are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. first one comes in chapter 2, and the warning is, since Jesus is better, don't drift away. And the second warning passage comes in chapter 3, verse 7 and following. It says, if Jesus is better, which He is, don't harden your hearts. And then in chapter 6, the, the warning is this, Jesus is better, so don't fall away. In chapter 10, which we'll get to probably after my vacation, it says, Jesus is better, so don't set Him aside. And then in chapter 12, there comes another warning. Jesus is better, so don't come short. Don't come short of His grace. It's the message of the book of, of Hebrews. But today, we reach this last paragraph in chapter 10 that begins in verse 23. I want to read it for you, but we can't really start there. We've got to start back in verse 18. So let me read that there. Therefore, even the first covenant, that is the law, first five books of the, um, the Bible, was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. In the same way, He sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So we've got to catch this, okay? When, when Moses gave the law initially, kind of a partial law, and they began to build and construct some of these items, he came before the people, he read the law, they took the blood of bulls, he took the blood of goats, he mixed it with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, put it on some kind of something that he could, he could shake, and he sprinkled the book, and he sprinkled all the people with his blood. 
And then there was the tabernacle and he sprinkled the tabernacle and he sprinkled all the vessels of the ministry, the altar of incense, the, the table of showbread, the, the brazen altar, the, the labor, the mercy seat, sprinkling it all, consecrating it with blood. And the principle of this is verse 22. When you read the law, you can almost say, you can't totally say because there were some purification rituals which, which had water and and some other things, but according to law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. We're going back historically to see when Moses consecrated these things to cleanse them. He cleansed them ceremonially with the blood. And then, in verse 23, we begin to our text. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. And let me just comment here uh, a little bit. The copies of the things in the heavens are the, the earthly things, because so there's this heavenly reality, um, which I'll, I'll talk about in a little bit. But it's the copies of the things. It's talking about the things of Moses. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await Him. Verse 23 takes us back, like I said, to everything that Moses did. And, and as He cleansed the copies of the things in the heavens, so also Jesus cleansed the heavenly things. In fact, it says there the heavenly things must be cleansed with these. And I, I want to just bring to your mind again about this, this whole reality that there there is a an origin or original type of the tabernacle in heaven of which the earthly tabernacle which Moses built with a holy place and the holy of holies, that's just a, a shadow and a representation of what that is. How exactly it represents it, I'm not sure. But if you know Isaiah chapter 6, there is a throne room in God. There is a temple in heaven. And the tabernacle merely approximates that temple somehow. I think there's a picture of that, of entering God's presence is something you need to stay away from. You need blood to be able to enter. And all these pictures are just pictures of representation of the heavenly tabernacle. We've already talked about that. In chapter 8, verse 2, it speaks about how Jesus is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So there's this true tabernacle in heaven and there's this earthly tabernacle. And we see in chapter 8, verse 5, that it's just a, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. In chapter 9, verse 11, we see that when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. And He defines it. He says, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So, Jesus entered this greater tabernacle. He never entered the holy place while He was on earth. Never entered the holy of holies. Why? Because He was from the tribe of Judah and anyone from the tribe of Judah had to stay away. It was only the Levites and it was only um, the high priests who could enter into the Holy of Holies. And that's being talked about here in our text this morning. It was necessary for the earthly tabernacle to be cleansed and so also it was necessary for the heavenly tabernacle to be cleansed. The, the heavenly tabernacle, though, couldn't be cleansed with blood of bulls and goats. 
It needed better sacrifices. And that's the point of verse 23. But the heavenly things themselves needed to be cleansed with better sacrifices. I've puzzled long and hard on what this means, that there are better sacrifices. I would have liked it much better if he had said it was necessary for the copies, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. Because that makes sense, because Christ was sacrificed once. And the, the writer believes that. I mean, that's the point of verse 25 and 26, is that he was only sacrificed once. So I say, why does it mean that he sacrifice says? And the only conclusion I can come up with is maybe it's talking about the entire life of Christ was a life of suffering and difficulty. We can see his whole life as sacrifices. Or, or maybe, as Calvin says, it is for the sake of contrast of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The Old Covenant. Clearly, he's referring to the single sacrifice of Christ. I do think that this is the point of the passage. For that purpose, I have entitled my message this morning, A Better Sacrifice, referring to the sacrifice of Christ. We see three reasons here why the sacrifice of Christ was better. First of all, it cleanses heaven. As we've already seen, we've vamped up to that. It was necessary for the heavenly things to be cleansed with better sacrifices, or with a better sacrifice. And of course, that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But, but comes this question now. Why did heaven need to be cleansed? I'm not sure if you thought about that, but this is, well, we can see about the earthly things, but why the heavenly things? Aren't things in heaven perfect? Well, why do they need to be cleansed? Things need to be cleansed when people are dirty, right? Like my kids come to me, and when they got ketchup on their face all around there, I'm like, ah, you got food on your face and I can, I can clean it off. Why parents lick their thumbs and then lick their face, I'm not sure, but that's what they do, clean their face. Or when, when the kids come with filth on their fingers, I know it's time to take them to the bathroom. To, and, and what happens if uh, they walk around the house with grease on their fingers? It's going to bring it every place. Or my son, SR, mowed the lawn. I haven't mowed the lawn for two years now. It's been a wonderful thing. SR is taking care of that. And, uh, you know, his shoes are all covered with grass. If he walks in the house with his, with his lawn mowing shoes, what's going to happen? He's going to defile everything. SR, clean your shoes. Take your socks off. Take your shoes. Leave them outside. You can see and know. Sometimes you can smell. Stephanie, you really need a bath. I need to give her a bath. But I'm thinking about the... The things in the heavens, were heavens defiled? Were they polluted? It's a question. Some commentators, in trying to figure it out, say, well, the, the spiritual forces of wickedness are there and they need to cleanse from that. And, and that's true. And when Satan fell, he fell in heaven. All the demons are there. The spiritual warfare we fight, Ephesians 6, is, is not fleshly. But, but that's entirely foreign to the context of Hebrews. So I, I don't think that's right. It doesn't talk about that. So I think the best thing... To understand this is to take our contextual clues and, and think about what took place in verses 18 to 22. The picture here is a consecration of the tabernacle to make it useful. You know when Moses cleansed these things of the blood, it's not that the, the vessels of the ministry were dirty. They were brand new. They were shiny clean. The issue isn't cleansing them from dirt to make them clean. The issue is more of a consecration of them to prepare them for sacred use. And in some way, in some measure, Christ had to... Prepare heaven for sacred use. Because think about this also. Apart from the blood of Christ, we would defile heaven. And so the 
the blood of Christ cleanses, prepares, washes us even as we enter into heaven. The sacrifice of Jesus even allows us to enter heaven. And I think that's what verse 24 is saying. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Here we see Jesus entering, and He's entering what? He's entering for us. He's appearing in the presence of God for us. He's cleansed heaven so that we can get into heaven. And I do believe these last two words of verse 24 are good news for us. Jesus is in heaven for us. He's in heaven. And by the way, when we go to heaven, we'll be in heaven for Him. He is our advocate, according to 1 John 2.1. He's our lawyer who pleads a case before the judge. You can picture yourself maybe accused of something. You're on the defendant's table and your lawyer goes up and pleads on your behalf the judge, whispering some things across the bench to the judge and you're kind of sitting there saying, I hope what he's saying is right. But he's representing you and that's what Jesus does. He says, Father, it's my blood covers their sin and takes it away and you bore, I bore it upon the cross for me to bring them in. And he's our advocate or... Using the terminology of Hebrews, Jesus is our high priest. He's the one that goes to God on our behalf. He intercedes for us. He is the mediator between God and man. He's the one that took our sin upon the cross. He's the one who brings the blood of His sacrifice to the Father as a propitiation for our sins. He's the one who claims the merits of His own blood on our behalf and we by faith believe in Him and are washed clean in the blood of Christ. Such is how better His sacrifice is. And, and I want us just to dwell here for a moment on those words that Jesus appears in the presence of God for us. We don't think about priests at Rock Valley Bible Church too often. I mean, I'm not a priest. I'm a, I'm a pastor, a shepherd and, and lead and guide and teach and feed the church. But, but my picture is this. I'm one among you saying, go to Christ. Go to Him. Right? Go to Jesus. He'll take you to God. But a priest is different. A priest says, <laughs> come to me and I'll bring you to God. It becomes a funnel and that's not, it's not New Testament religion. We don't need priests. But we need a priest. We need Jesus Christ as our priest. This means we have someone to go to when we're in trouble. It means we have someone who's an inside track to God. Helps our relationship with the Lord. And just think about our high priest. Is this really be the last message focusing upon the high priestly role of Christ in the book of Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 speaks about our high priest. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. We have a sympathizing high priest who walked among us and who, who knows our weaknesses. He knows the weaknesses of the flesh. He can deal gently Chapter 5, verse 2, with us. He knows the temptations that we face. And as He conquered them, He can help us through those temptations to live righteously. Jesus is a perfect high priest. It says in chapter 5, verse 8, Although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. And having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Now, there's some question here about what this is. How can Jesus learn obedience how can He be made perfect? And the issue here is that He learned obedience from experience. He became perfect from experience. Not that He was, wasn't perfect before, but, but more in the sense that He has been refined and pull, fully completed through the process of living in the human flesh. It, 
There's, there's a perfection there that took place, a completion of uh, understanding our plight as human beings. And Christ, as a high priest, appearing for us, is a perfect, obedient high priest. He's also a sinless high priest. Chapter 7, verse 26, speaks about Jesus, how He was a holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens sort of high priest. All these words speak about His purity. He was holy, separate, distinct from us, morally pure in every sense. He was innocent, totally without sin of any kind. He was undefiled, never having been stained by sin in any way. He walked right amongst all the sinning people in Israel and Judah and was never defiled by them. He was separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And as much as Jesus is one of us, there's a sense where He's not one of us. He's God Himself in the heavens. And which is a good thing because as He mediates between man and God, He doesn't mediate as this inferior being to God, but superior to us. He doesn't doesn't, uh, say, Oh, God, I I need you for on the behalf of these men. He comes to God as an equal. He says, God, I died for these people. Accept them and bring them in. And that's good news. Jesus is in heaven for us. speaks about the greatness of His sacrifice. I was better sacrifice, cleansed heaven to bring us even to God. Well, let's look at my second point. The sacrifice of Jesus is better because it doesn't need repeating. And here, we're just going to start a theme that's going to continue on through chapter 10. Nor was it that He would offer Himself often as the high priest enter the holy place year by year with blood that is not His own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The background of these verses is the Day of Atonement. In the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, on the tenth day, which is normally September, October in our calendar, every day, every year, the Day of Atonement, the priest would take the blood of a bull and he would slit its throat, I've told you this before, and would take the blood of that and would enter into the holy place and sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat there with his finger, and then he'd back out. That was for his sins. And then he would slit the throat of a goat and sacrifice it and take the blood of the goat and do the same thing for the sins of the people. And he did this year after year after year after year. In Israel, they always had the Day of Atonement, seventh month, tenth day, always celebrated. The only day... The only year that they didn't celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was when they had no temple. And you remember when when Israel went into exile, the Babylonians came and and ransacked the temple and destroyed it, and they had no temple. They, They couldn't celebrate the Day of Atonement. But surely they celebrate it in their hearts like Jews do today. The only reason Jews today don't offer sacrifice is because the temple was destroyed. It was destroyed in AD 70. Though they do today, based upon the counsel of one rabbi, make self-atonement because the rabbi said, well, it's no longer sacrifices that God wants. Hosea 6.6, 6, it's uh, mercy that God wants now. It's loving kindness that He wants. And so that's how they atone for their sins today on the Day of Atonement. Just mercy and kindness. But they still remember that. And should they somehow get control of the Temple Mount and build a temple up there, I think the Jews would start sacrificing again and start celebrating the Day of Atonement like this. But the point is that year after year after year after year, the high priest enters that holy place. And he says, this is not what the sacrifice of Christ is like. 
He would not offer Himself often like that. When Jesus was about to breathe His last, He was upon the cross, you remember what He said? It is finished. He didn't say, oh, I'm about to die, guys, but I'll be back next year to die for you again. He didn't say that. It was finished. It was done. A single sacrifice of Jesus. Have you ever thought about if the... I can say this. Well, getting into chapter 10, it speaks about the, the repeated sacrifices show that they can't quite ever take away sins. Just like soap can wash us clean, but can't quite ever thoroughly cleanse us. Have you ever thought about this? If the single sacrifice of Jesus wasn't sufficient for our sins, He'd have to come back again. And so say His, say his um, sacrifice was good for ten years. Better than the bulls and goats. That means you come back in a decade later. Or, or, or better for a generation. That means every generation you have to come and, and sac- be sacrificed for sins. In fact, that's the point of what it says here. If it was so, he entered often, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. From, from Adam's day until through today, if the single sacrifice of Christ wasn't sufficient, he would have had to suffer often and often and often. But the sacrifice of Christ was just once. It's the good news of the Gospel. Is it atoned for all the sins of all who ever believed? And that came at the consummation of the ages, what it says in verse 26. The pinnacle of history came A.D. 33 or, or whenever that was. A.D. 30. There's some discrepancy about when that was. That was the pinnacle of history. That was the consummation of the ages. That was the high point of history when Christ paid for our sins upon the cross. One sacrifice for all time. And we can look back to that. Jesus no longer needs to suffer. Now that is contrary to the Roman Catholic Church. believes that Jesus continues to suffer. In the Mass, there's another sacrifice every time they celebrate the Mass, which is daily in almost every Catholic Church. They sacrifice the Mass every day. And that's Jesus being sacrificed, they say. And it's no accident in the Roman Catholic Churches, Jesus still hangs upon the cross. Why is that? Because they believe He's still suffering. Or some Protestant churches, rightly so, when they have crosses in the front of their church buildings, there's no Jesus hanging on that cross because Jesus isn't suffering anymore. His sacrifice was sufficient. Now, there are some ways Jesus suffers. Paul is on the road to Damascus, going to persecute Christians there, and Jesus comes down and says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you what persecuting me? He's suffering. I'm suffering. You are persecuting me, Paul. You persecute the church, Paul. You persecute me. And and the idea there is that there's such a a great unity between Jesus and the church that to attack the church is to attack Jesus. But it's not Jesus bodily. It's more Jesus like a parent suffers with a child with terminal illness. I, I think those parents suffer greatly. Children dying of some kind of cancer that they get. Parents suffer a lot, wouldn't they? But they don't suffer bodily. They, they suffer anguish and emotional turmoil and, and difficult. That's a bit like what Jesus suffers today, but it's not, it's not bodily. The point is this, though, that Jesus suffered once. And that's because of the greatness of His sacrifice. Look at verse 26, the second half of that. But now, once, and that's going to be a key word. Next week we'll see that coming up more and more. Just this one sacrifice. 
at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. In fact, look here in chapter 10 where it appears. Chapter 10, verse 10. speaks about by the will of Christ, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That is, once for all time. Jesus was sacrificed once. Chapter 10, verse 12. But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Or chapter 10, verse 14. By one offering, He's perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Just the uniqueness of the sacrifice of Christ. It's only offered once. It doesn't need repeating. It's a little bit like the difference between renting and owning. Maybe any kids here, can you tell me what the difference between renting and owning is? What's the difference? What is it, Andrew? Yep, exactly right. And, and the sacrifices of the Old Testament were like renting. It just had to be again and again. Every month comes, first of the month, you've got to write your check. You've got, you got to, because I don't own it, but so I'm, I'm just there, just doing it again and again and again. But if you own your house, no more checks to write. Or the car, you've got a car lease, and you're just continuing to pay on that, pay on that, pay on that. And when you're done, so you take a 36-month lease, you're done with it, it goes back to the dealer. Because you never bought it, you're just using it and you're paying for the privilege of using it. But if you buy your car, you've got your car and never have to make payments again. And that is what Christ has done for us. And that's biblical terminology. Think about how often the Bible speaks about how Christ redeemed us. That means that He purchased us. He bought us. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. having become a curse for us. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption in His blood. He has bought us. He's purchased us. Or Hebrews 9.12. Look over there. It's not through the blood of goats and calves that Christ did it, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He's bought us forever. We're not going back. We're not being foreclosed on, if you will. And this is clear even in how verse... Nine, verse 26 says it. He said, He was manifest to put away sin. Jesus had sin and He put it away. He buried it. He removed it. And it's never coming back again. Eternal redemption. So just think upon that. Jesus, for us who believe, has taken our sin and He has put it away. Earlier I said in verse 25 that that verse says it's eye on the atonement, the day of atonement. There was actually a, a third animal involved. We saw the bull sacrifice first, saw the goat sacrifice. Who knows what the third animal is? Remember that? The third animal. The what? Not, not a bird. That's a good guess. The what? The scapegoat. Exactly. That's another goat that they had that as soon as the priest, the high priest, sprinkled the blood of the goat. He came out before he took his garments off, before he washed, they presented him with a live goat. He was to place his hands upon that goat, confess over it the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins and would lay on them the head of the goat and then he would send this goat away into the wilderness. The scapegoat. And, and he actually wouldn't go because he had to wash himself and cleanse himself. But he gave it to a man 
who would take this goat, you just imagine it, and takes it way out in the wilderness where no one's around for miles to see, and then he lets the goat go, watch him run away, and then slips away. That was a picture of sacrifice in the Old Testament. A little bit like the, the, uh, the, the blood is a picture. That scapegoat is a picture of this very thing that Jesus Himself put away sin. Right? When that, when that goat took off, we have no idea where it went. And that's the idea. That, it, that it's gone. It's done away with us. As uh, Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far He's removed our transgressions from us. He'll never find it again. He'll never bring it up again. And that's what it means that He... He put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. That's why His sacrifice is better. The sacrifice of the Old Covenant couldn't, couldn't do that. But the sacrifice of Jesus finally put away sin. In fact, just look down at chapter 10 um, a little bit. Verse 1, The law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never... By the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. And the mere fact that they're repeated shows the fact they're not efficacious. Because, would they not have ceased? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of, of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And we'll dig into that more next week, but it means that just, just the, the repeated sacrifices can't do it. But it's the one sacrifice of Christ which put it away, did it. We indeed have a better sacrifice. And why the Jewish people would want to go back into these things, I don't know. The pull of tradition, maybe the pull of security. But there's no use, no sense in doing that. Well, quickly now, let's go to verse 27. We get the third reason why the sacrifice of Jesus is better is because it brings salvation. Look at verse 27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. You see this once theme coming up here? And it's all going back to the fact that the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, is sufficient to bring salvation. Before he gets to salvation, though, he speaks about our future, which is verse 27. Our future is death. Coming slow or coming fast, it is but death who comes at last. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7.2, Death is the end of every man. Life expectancy in the United States is uh, 78 years. Mortality rate in the United States. Anyone know what the mortality rate in the United States is? 100%. That's right. Everyone born will die. Death awaits us all. It's that event upon our daytimers which we never really planned for, but one day it just shows up. Now, from our standpoint, it just shows up, but from God's standpoint, it comes as planned. You realize that God has ordained every single day for you before you've even lived one of them? Psalm 139, verse 16, David said, In your book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, before, and when as yet there was not one of them. By divine appointment, we will die 
on the precise day that God has decreed. And you're immortal until that day. But we don't know the day. It's the mystery of God. It is. And yet, sadly, there are many who live their lives not taking that day into account. They're like the the man in the parable that Jesus told who was very rich and his land was very productive and was producing more crops than his barns could hold. And so he said to himself, Self, I will tear down these barns and build bigger barns so that I can you know, have plenty for the future and I will live at ease and eat and drink and be merry for many years to come. And in the parable, God addresses this man. Do you remember what He calls him? You fool. Do you not know that this very night your soul is required of you? Now who alone would you have prepared? It's like you haven't prepared, you haven't thought about this day on your calendar which is coming. And for this man it came that night. He made no plans for his death. Called a fool by God. And there are many today who don't plan for their own deaths. And what should we call them? Fools. Call them fools. Death awaits us all. And really the reality is all of us are heartbeat away from meeting our Maker. One heartbeat away. Well, after you die, you meet your Maker. That's what verse 27 says. It's appointed for men to die once. By the way, this ought to throw out all thoughts of reincarnation. Men don't die twice. Now, there are some exceptions to this. You might even say, it's much appointed for most every single man to die once because Lazarus died twice. Uh, he was raised from the dead. At the end of Matthew's account, after the resurrection, many tombs were up. All those people who raised died again. Okay, But for us, that exception is not going to apply. We're going to die once. We're not coming back. No reincarnation here. We die once. And after this comes the judgment, according to verse 25. After you die, at some point in the future, you're going to stand in the courtroom. God's going to be there and He's going to judge you. Jesus pictured the scene like this. All the nations will be gathered before Him. He'll separate them, the one from the other. The shepherd separates sheep. He says he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The sheep, Jesus says, will inherit the kingdom and obtain eternal life. And the goats, on the other hand, will depart into the eternal fire where they'll face eternal judgment. And there's a finality of that. You come before the King of Kings. Actually, you come before Jesus is what it says here in Matthew 25. It says that in Acts chapter 17 that there is a day in which God has appointed Jesus Christ to judge men. And you either come with a sheep or you come with a goat based upon what you are. Are you a sheep or a goat? It's clear and it's obvious. No second chances. There's a finality of it. And here we see where the sacrifice of Christ is better because within the judgment comes a salvation through His blood could never take place with the Old Testament sacrifices. So Christ also, it says in verse 28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, and we think about that, this, what, the reality of what took place upon the cross. First Peter says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. It means that Jesus, when He was dying there upon the cross, was bearing sin upon Himself. And He was bearing that sin for us. That's what took place the first time He came when He was offered once to bear the sins of many. He will appear a second time. That's His second return. The purpose here is for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. 
talking about the, the second coming of Christ. When He comes to bring His children to Himself, He will come and save us. He will come and rescue us. He's not going to be concerned with sin. That's what it means that He's going to come, as it says, without reference to sin or apart from sin. Because He's already dealt with that in His first coming. He's not going to come and deal with that. He's going to come and judge. He's going to come with a concern upon His heart, though He's going to come with a concern to save. And notice here, He's not going to save everybody. There's a certain sort of person He's going to save. He's going to save those who eagerly await Him. And of course, those who eagerly await Him are who? Those who believe in Him. Those who believe that He's going to come back. Those are the ones who are awaiting Him. And it says here they are eagerly awaiting Him. Perhaps there's even a sense here where it's not just someone says, yeah, He's coming back someday. You remember Jesus told the parable about the landowner who went away. And, and, and the, they, they knew He was coming back, but there was the wise steward and the foolish steward. And the wise steward was eagerly awaiting His return every day. The foolish one was just getting drunk and doing whatever. And so there's a sense here even that, that saving faith is saving faith that makes a difference, especially as it, as it uh, addresses the reality of His return. I'm just asking you, are you eagerly awaiting that moment when Christ would return? Eagerly awaiting. Like, come. Right? It's the end of Revelation says, right? Come, Lord Jesus. Yes, I'm coming closely. Come, because I want you to come back. It's a sign of a believer. I want you to come back right now because heaven is my home. My citizenship is there in heaven. It's not here upon the earth. That's where my heart is. That's where I want to be. The one who eagerly waits for the moment is, as Psalm 130 says, the, like, the, like the watchman who's watched all night long and he's tired and it's about 4 o'clock in the morning and he's just eagerly waiting for that sun to arise up so he can go home and go to bed. You work nights, you know what that's about, huh? <laughs> a couple times a week. Four, four times a week, five times a week, three, four times a week. So. I know what that's about. I remember working midnights. Man, I just love to see that light coming up because it meant I was almost going to get some sleep. I didn't tolerate the nights very well. That just wasn't me. But that's what Psalm 130 says. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. So I'm longing for His return. You ever eagerly awaited for anything? What kind of things do you eagerly wait for? The package that's going to come? Christmas? Boy, I remember hard to sleep. December 24th for me when Christmas coming. Anything else you eagerly wait for? Wedding day, maybe? You remember that? I, I remember um, having problems thinking straight just thinking about our wedding day sometimes. So Judson College and here in Illinois and get married in California. And I just, I, it's about what I thought about. It was just getting married someday. Just eagerly awaiting that. And maybe some other things. I know that right now our family is eagerly awaiting vacation. Um, we can visit Grandma Lola and Grandpa Ray in California. You know, we've, we've always gone out there. I've tried to every summer. And uh, we've always flown, but with seven, seven of us, it's getting a little more expensive. And so we're looking at driving this year. To, but it's new for us. And so we're, we're planning and we're working ab- about it. And it, it's creating a new level of anticipation. In fact, my daughter Stephanie recently said, 
Dad, Mom, are you guys just always working to see until we can go on vacation? Like preparing for vacation didn't come out quite right. But, but she's complaining to us that all we're doing is we're working so that we can get on vacation out to California. You know, we bought this new trailer and there's some, some things that got to be fixed up there. There's packing. Yvonne's got this box near the door. She told me recently everything that uh, we need, just kind of putting stuff in there as reminders, this box is just growing bigger with stuff. We're, we're making our meals easy. Yvonne's been dehydrating food for the last three weeks or so. Just going and going. And we're anticipating that day when he'll come. Anticipating the drive out to, to California. And that's what it's talking about. Are we eagerly awaiting Jesus to return from heaven? Because we know that we're saved and because we can rejoice in His coming to rescue us from our sin. Paul did. Paul knew that he was a heartbeat away at the end of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4. Paul said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He's in jail. Um, He's soon to stand before the Roman magistrate. He says, the time of my departure has come. I'm about to die. He looks back upon his life, says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. And then he says, in the future is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He's looking at Jesus being judged, but knowing that he's not going to face him as judge, he's going to face him as Savior. And he's rejoicing in that day because he's going to receive this crown of righteousness And then he says, not only is he going to receive that crown of righteousness, but also all who have loved his appearing. Everyone else who has longed for Jesus to come back again. Are you longing for Christ to come back again? Are you one of those who eagerly await him? His better sacrifice gives us all the more reason to hope and trust in that. What else are you going to trust in if you don't trust in the sacrifice of Christ? Are you going to trust in your own righteousness? You're not offering up sacrifices. You can't trust in them. And they're useless anyway, which we'll see next week. They can never take away sins. Listen, there's only one place to trust. It's in Jesus Christ, His work upon the cross, His better sacrifice than all the Old Testament sacrifices. So let's pray. I just want you even now to, to meet with the Lord. Just say, God, what, this day on my calendar, which is coming, Am I eagerly awaiting that? Oh God, I pray. I pray for those who are fools in this room who are not looking towards that day. I pray You'd open their eyes. I pray You'd show them the light of the Gospel, the glory of Christ. I pray that You'd make them alive. I pray You'd give them new hearts, soften their hearts, give them new minds, darkened, illuminate their hearts and their minds. Lord, for us who believe, I pray that You give us an increasing anticipation of Your return. We are one day closer to our death, our return, than we were yesterday. We are marching towards that day, and I pray that we'd see it, that it's coming. Lord, we don't know when, but I pray You'd ring in our hearts that that would be a day that comes true and quickly for us. Help us to eagerly wait today, Lord. When you come back, your sign flashes across the heavens. The heavens flash across the sky. So will the turn of the Son of Man be that we might see you in all of your glory and might rejoice in that day because we know that your better sacrifice has atoned for our sins. Oh, dig these things, God, deep into our hearts. We need you 
to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Open our eyes to see the glories of the cross of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.